some time ago, I came across a, a story written by an author whose friend, a pilot, was in a desperate trouble. He was flying his single-engine plane toward a, a small county uh, airport, and he was behind schedule. He'd left later than he wanted to. By the time he reached the airfield where he planned to land, the sun had dropped down behind a mountain, and it's like somebody had turned the lights off, and he was in trouble. By the time he maneuvered around into position to land, he couldn't make out the runway from the field. He had no real lighting on his plane, and there was no one on duty at this little airport. He circled around, in fact, for two hours. He flew around overhead in the darkness, trying to decide what to do. He knew that he probably faced certain death when his fuel ran out. And just as his panic began to sweep over him, a wonderful thing occurred. A man who lived near that little airfield had heard the droning of the plane and finally put two and two together. He'd run out of his house, jumped into his car, he raced to that little airfield, and he drove back and forth on it with his high beams blazing. Then he parked at the end of the airfield so his beams could cast light over that little strip of pavement, and the plane came in over the car and landed safely, and his life was spared. The Apostle James, to me, has been that gracious man. He is showing us the lights along the path that leads to not just a safe landing. In fact, he isn't just interested in that. He's, he's interested in us living. Now, for the casual reader, if you've been with us, uh, if you treat the Bible like a magazine in the doctor's office, you flip through the pages, you look at the pictures, you skim the titles, and then toss it aside. To that reader, James is a little too much uh, in your face. In fact, for those of us that are serious about it, it's a little too much in our face. He's deadly serious about these issues because he knows these issues are deadly serious. Not only does James not want us to run out of gas and, and crash Along the way, he doesn't want us landing on the wrong airstrip either. And there are many, and many are better lighted and more alluring. So he's aligned the path with inspired, God-breathed, state-of-the-art lighting. Managed by the Holy Spirit who is never off-duty. And what he does now in this next paragraph is deliver to us... Ten imperatives, ten verbs in quick uh, succession. Each could be ended with an exclamation point. And I want you to think of them as ten brilliant spotlights to illumine your walk with Christ. Now, let me make it very clear. We're going to cover nine. I'm going to give you five points. And we're going to stuff nine of these under those five points. The first few will just have one imperative. Some of them will have several. We'll get through nine, but I'll only give you five points, okay? So you do get your money's worth, whatever that's worth. All right? Now, go to chapter 4 of James' letter and verse 7 where we left off. Submit yourself to God. You could write an exclamation point there. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. You sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, exclamation point. Mourn, 
Weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, someone might easily say, James is obviously not writing to Christians, but to the unconverted. I mean, you don't talk to Christians like this. James is showing people the path to salvation. I mean, they contend, and I read them, men I respect, by the way, that, that, that James can't be talking about a believer who, who can't be addicted to pleasure, verse 1. He can't be a murderer, verse 2. He can't be a spiritual adulteress, hostile to God, verse 4. There's no way a Christian could ever be guilty of that. So James is writing to unbelievers. He's telling them to get right with God. At first reading, it may seem that way. But nothing could be further from the truth, and I think it's important to stop for a moment. This is not the language of redemption. This is not an invitation to the cross for the unbeliever. This is not a description of the toning work of Christ alone for salvation. James is, is not talking about unbelievers who need to be redeemed. He's talking to believers who need to act like it. And that's, that's the tone of his letter. By the way, as you interpret Scripture, one of the critical questions you've got to answer is to whom is the author writing? If you miss that, you can miss the application, and that's one issue where here we find that critical hermeneutical question. To whom is he writing? And then once you discover that, you can move on. Our problem in our Bible studies in America is we typically sit around a circle, we read a text, and then we say to each other, well, what did that mean to you? It doesn't matter what it meant to you until you first learn what it meant to them. Otherwise, you could be off. You could be headed to the wrong airstrip by way of application. See, James is writing to Jewish Christians, and they're going to understand immediately his military language. They're going to understand his ceremonial cleansing type of language, and we'll cover that as we go through this. He is not telling an unconverted person, by the way, to submit to God. They have no relationship with God to begin with. They're running from God. They're they're not interested in drawing near to God. How can you draw near until you first belong to Him? Millions of people, by the way, are trying to draw near to God in their own way. They're trying to merit their justification. That's why it's so critical to understand this. They're trying to merit their salvation, earn it, so that God will accept them. And okay, good, you're going to give me nine, ten more things to do. I'll do it. I'll get them right. An unbeliever can't wash his hands and purify his heart. He has has not yet plunged into the flow of Christ's cleansing blood. See, James 4 is not the language of justification. It is the language of reformation. In fact, one author correctly said that you could refer to this paragraph as the language of revival. This is how to be revived as a believer. And keep in mind, uh, there again is another word um, uh, misused by the American church. Revival is not for unbelievers. Revival is for believers. An unbeliever is spiritually, apart from Christ, dead, Ephesians tells us. You do not revive a corpse. You need a resurrection for that. You You need a rebirth, new life. 
You revive an unconscious person. You revive a comatose person. You revive a slumbering, sleeping person. Revival is not for the spiritually dead. Revival is for the spiritually delinquent. And James is sort of holding the smelling salts under the, of truth under our noses. He's saying to the apathetic, the undisciplined, the unrepentant believer, the wayward son or daughter, wake up! Here's the path! Land here! Live here! The original construction, I think, makes it even clearer. These are imperatives. These are things we do. Everything we do as Christians follows who we've become. The last thing you ever want to do is tell somebody, listen, if you'd like to become a Christian, do it. He says, here, they will simply do what many people are doing today, and I've talked to far too many of them who, who are attempting to turn over a new leaf, and they have yet to find life in Christ. These imperatives are for the redeemed who need to turn their faith into Life And James, the in-your-face apostle, will not hold back. He's writing to Christians who need to be reformed and revived, and that would mean 100% of us in this well-lit auditorium. All of us, and I can see every one of you as I deliver these imperatives. I know that's exciting, beyond words. All right, here's the first one. Number one, here's the categorical heading. We'll cover one imperative under this heading. Fall in. Fall in. Look back at verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Stop. The word submit is a combination of two Greek words. The word for under and the word for, or the verb, to station, to place. It was a military term in, in, in James' day that literally meant to rank under. Fall in line. Rediscover, and we do daily, our rank, which is under God. We tend to forget that. Sometimes we try, we, we try to outrank him. No wonder we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which takes a lifetime and more. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And by the way, James is delivering the idea here of voluntary falling in. Voluntary, willing submission under the authority of our superior. This is not coerced. This is cooperative. We used to pile into the car, make a 24-hour trip to Minnesota, place of my father's birth and, and upbringing. I was born in, in Worthington, Minnesota. We'd gather that summer, and there were cousins by the truckload brought in. I didn't know half of them. We just would meet, and a lot of boys about the same age, and as soon as we met in that reunion, we'd race. We'd wrestle. It's a nicer word for fight. You ever had your arm pulled behind your back by your cousin who says, give up? And you say, no, I'm not going to give up. Give up. And how do you prove you've given up? You say, uncle. Don't know why that relative was chosen of all the words. <laughs> but that relative was mentioned often in our reunions. This is not the kind of submission James is talking about. He's referring to the reviving believer who voluntarily and willingly says, I have no greater desire than to fall in under your authority. That is my great delight. 
You can see this, by the way, this word illustrated in the workplace. This is the employee who doesn't just submit to the letter of the job description. I'm not going to do that. That's not in my purview. And that's not in my job description. That's, not, that's outside my cubicle. I've got these, this eight by six. This is mine. It's not in here. That's out there. Now, this is the employee who understands the goals of the company and desires to take initiative to see it accomplished. This is the athlete who in the off-season runs laps because he knows ultimately it will please the coach. See, this attitude transcends your immediate authority and tracks all the way to your heavenly authority. Like the Apostle Paul who said, it is my ambition, it is my ambition to be pleasing to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. One of my uh, favorite profs from days gone by that are now further and further away from where I am today, Howard Hendricks, once sat on a plane and was delayed for takeoff. After a long wait, the passengers became agitated. You've been there. You know, the air conditioner doesn't work until it finally takes off. It's hot and They were becoming more and more irate. Hendricks noticed, he wrote, that one particular flight attendant remained gracious as she spoke with irate and upset passengers. After the plane finally took off, he said, I told the flight attendant how amazed I I was at her gracious spirit, and, and I wanted to write a letter of commendation for her to the airline. And the stewardess looked at me and said, thank you, and smiled, but then added, she did not work for the airline company. She worked for Jesus Christ. Wow. See, you are, you are not just submitting to someone you can see. You are submitting to someone you will one day see. So James isn't referring to the believer who says, all right, Lord, uh, you got me. I'll say uncle. No, it's, Lord, there's nothing more that I want to do right now Nothing more satisfying to me than ranking under your authority and falling in. Number two, second imperative, also the second point of five, although we'll cover nine imperatives. Look at verse seven again. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Again, James uses a military term, resist means to take a stand. Eyes open, armor on, and you're taking your stand. Against the devil, interesting, he uses the the definite article, and it makes it clear James is not buying into the superstition of his generation and all the way to ours, that the devil is just this mystical force. If he has a form, he's probably got a tail and a pitchfork in his hand. He's just, you know, this is just a reference to evil. Bad stuff. There's no real devil. No, the devil article. He's referring to a real person, a real created being. In fact, the highest created of the angelic host who wanted to be greater than his creator God, Isaiah 14. Now, the name devil is interesting. He has many names. He chose the devil here. Literally means accuser. And it is one of of Satan's chief attempts to accuse God before you. And I think it follows well with this other imperative and the ones to follow. You want to submit to God? 
Well, the enemy's going to come and accuse God to you and say, are you, are you serious? When's the last time you saw him? Never have. When's the last time you heard his voice? Never have. You, you mean you're submitting to an invisible, inaudible God? You've got to be kidding. You see, he'll accuse God to you. He doesn't know what you're going through. He doesn't really care about you. He's missed some of the details. You're on your own. Stand strong against the accuser. It is his chief desire to subvert worship away that God deserves. It is worship that Satan most envies. This was his chief desire in his pride, and it became his downfall. And he loves nothing more than seeing worship that belongs to God not given to him. That's why he troubles the believer and is not really all that interested in the unbeliever who already belonged to him. And he's read the end of the book, by the way, which I find fascinating because he knows how it ends. But he so hates Christ, he so hates the Christian, he so hates the church, that until his final and eternal incarceration in hell, he will attempt to do all he can to diminish, divert, dilute genuine worship to Christ. And that means you're in his way. So stand strong. Resist him. Which isn't, by the way, some call that has been so mystically defined here that, that you engage in name-calling and, and, uh, and, and, and blustering and statements of authority and incantations and special prayers known only by the Christians who went to the seminar or read the book. Uh, most of that is mumbo-jumbo. In fact, the greatest way to resist him is to follow the next imperative, draw near to God. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute, so slow down. Just a moment. The Puritan pastor and author, I think, illustrated well our foe when he reminded us, the devil cannot force you. He can only persuade you. Thomas Manton wrote, he is like a dog that stands looking and waving his tail ready to receive something from those who sit at the table. But if nothing is thrown to him, an angry word, an unclean glance, gestures of wrath, discontent, without any of that being thrown to him by those seated at the table, he goes away. He'll be back. Then he'll go away. He and his minions. Listen, he cannot lead you into sin without the consent of your will. He is a defeated foe who has no power over the Christian except the power of seduction. And he and his demons are relentless with it, returning again and again and again. So be on the alert. We stand firm against his schemes. Methodius is the word from which we get our word methods. We stand against, alerted to, not ignorant of his methods, his schemes, his strategies. He is a student of you. I like the way one author put it. I referenced it several sermons ago. I'll mention it again. Satan 
studies us. He has game film on us, one author said in this analogy. He studies it like a football or a basketball coach. Along with his players, he knows what he's up against. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your strengths. It's as if he has a playbook. He he knows what you like to do. He knows the buttons to push. He knows how you respond to certain things. They've studied you. They know what you like to talk about. They know the places you like to go. They know the people you like to hang around. So what you do as you submit to God, standing firm, you get up to the line of scrimmage and the coach calls a different play and you carry it out and that messes the enemy up. They weren't expecting that. You take the call in from the coach, you you dribble the ball, you take a shot the enemy had not planned on. And you win that particular... I mean, listen, Duke was not ready. (laughs) I thought it fit, you know. Carolina played the Blue Devils. I think that's perfect with this text. All right. Fall in, stand strong, third... Draw near. Look again, James writes, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is the positive side. He isn't just saying, stand there all by yourself and resist. You resist the devil, you relish God. This is David who who wrote, When when you said to me, O Lord, seek my face, I said, thy face, O oh God, will I, will I seek. This is David who wrote, this one thing I desire of the Lord that is above all other desires, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that I may behold the beauty of thy face. See, this is the deliberate action of the believer to worship God. It's the verb, and and the Jewish audience would have immediately picked up on it. Draw near is the same uh, verb used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for the priest who is approaching God with sacrifices. The priest is drawing near, following the prescription of God. By the way, this verse places the initiative on us, doesn't it? Did you notice that? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Somebody might say, well, look, if God wanted me to be closer, why doesn't he draw near to me, and then I'll draw near to him? I like that way. No, See, James here is is emphasizing the actions of a reviving believer who wants to live a satisfied life. God will not pull you out of bed, open the Bible, put it under your nose and say, right there is where you left off two and a half weeks ago. He isn't going to keep your computer turned off until you've talked with him. He isn't going to set your radio dial to Christian programming. See, these are your decisions. That's the mystery of sanctification where your surrendered will collabors with the divine will. And James is emphasizing our will, that side of the coin. These are your decisions. Do you really want to be close to God? Do you want to draw near to him? Well, how long? For how long? In what way? This is the one who is 
reviving while serving as a missionary in Paraguay. Stuart Sachs, a missionary, wrote um, of an Indian named Raphael who came one day to sit on his porch. Stuart wrote, I was eating at the time, went out to the porch to see what he wanted. He responded in his native tongue, Ham Hanachmet. Again, I asked him, what can I do for you? The answer was the same, Ham Hanachmet. I knew what the words were, but I didn't understand them until later when I talked to a veteran missionary. He explained this was Raphael's way of honoring me. The words he said, Hem Henachmet, mean, I don't want anything from you. I have just come near. I've just come near. How convicting is that? Divine satisfaction just being near. How many times do I go to God only because I want God? to do something, or I need something, or I want him to fix something. I want him to step in and act upon something. And so I go, okay, I'm here, but here's my list. And I want to check off how well you do against what I've written down. See, that's the temptation. I'm ready to line up for my miracle. In other words, there's got to be quid pro quo. No, this is someone who just draws near. I love this story I came across just the other day. A man by the name of Ed, Big Ed, they called him, went to a local tent revival. Not the guy that runs a restaurant downtown Raleigh. He went to a revival, listened intently to the preacher, this big tent revival. After a while, the preacher asked anybody with needs to come forward to be prayed over for their miracle. Big Ed got in line. When it was his turn, the preacher said, what's your name? Well, folks call me Big Ed. He responded, well, Big Ed, what do you want me to pray for? What do you want me to pray about? Big Ed said, well, I I need you to pray about my hearing. So the preacher put one hand on Big Ed's ear and the other hand on top of his head and began to pray and holler and eventually shake. And after a few minutes of that, he removed his hands, stuck a microphone up to Big Ed and said, how's your hearing now? And Big Ed said, well, I don't know, preacher. It's not until next Wednesday at the courthouse. (laughs) I love that on so many levels, but I, I don't have time to go there, but I love it. So where's the lineup for people who just want to draw near? And what's the line look for people who want the miracle? Who want stuff? A reviving believer cares more for the company of Christ than anything else. And before we leave this particular imperative... I want you to notice what's easy to miss. He's actually giving us a wonderful promise. At at your first reaction, it might sound like, well, this is one-sided. But no, James is giving us a promise. Whenever you want to draw close to him, guess what? What does he do? He responds. We're not that way. Somebody wants to get close to me, I may not want to get close to them. I may not want company. I may want to be alone. I might be in a bad mood. You've got to use your imagination for this illustration. Okay? I, I, I may not want to re- respond in like kind. Somebody's interested? I may not be. Let's take a quick survey here. 
How many ladies out here have been at some point in your life asked out on a date and you said no? Raise your hand. Wow. All over. How many of you finally gave in and and, and married the guy? (laughs) She's going, how many times did you say no to him? Three times. She said four. He said three. (laughs) How many times did he ask you to marry him? Just once. I mean, one persistent. I I think, you ought to congratulate you. You stand right now, young man, and you take a bow. Come on, stand up. I think we Come on, get up. There he is. Persistent man. (laughs) Worth it. Amen? Amen? Amen. Good for you. Here's the good news. You interested in getting closer to God? He's interested in the same thing, too. You want to worship God? He's he's ready. That's the idea. You never have to get out of bed and wonder if it's too early for him. You never have to pray wondering if he's saying, I heard that already. You never have to offer to him a challenge that you do have and wonder, I've already, that's like number 27. Maybe I ought to hold back. You draw near to God and God responds in kind. Fall in, stand strong, draw near. Here is the fourth imperative and the fourth point. Of five. Clean it up. Okay? Clean it up. Look at verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Thank you, James. We came to church to hear us call these things. It's true. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. You're probably thinking, what kind of Christianity is that? That'll sell. See, the fool mocks at sin, Proverbs tells us. The world laughs at sin. He says, turn it into mourning and weeping. See, to the Jewish reader, James knew they would have immediately picked up on this, these concepts of ceremonial cleansing. To cleanse your hands was the washing with water whereby a man could be ceremonially fit to approach both the worship and service to God. Exodus 30 and Leviticus 16. In fact, you remember, perhaps in Mark 7, they are ceremonially washing their hands before they eat. But James is going to take it further. He's not just talking about rituals. He's talking about morals. To cleanse your hands is a reference to external behavior, action. To purify your heart is a reference to cleansing internal attitudes. So he's covering it all. In other words, and I think these follow well, if you're drawing near to God, more than likely you'll discover sin. So don't brush it off. Don't say, well, that's really not sin, that's an issue, an excuse, a bad choice. 
a problem, a weakness. It's sin. Mourn over it. This is the daily cleansing by means of daily confession. This is the way we live. In fact, Martin Luther, the reformer, said we live lives of continual confession. And that is upon the basis of our redemption, not in order to be redeemed. You can't approach God with your hands behind your back, is the idea. You can't hold on to things you shouldn't be holding on to and, and, and be revived Experience the satisfaction of your walk with Christ. James is, James is saying, come on, he, he already knows what's in your hands. He knows what's there. He knows who you are. You might be one of his sheep, but you cannot pull the wool over his eyes. Clean it up. You could say it this way, come clean. My wife and I were in Nashville, the National Religious Broadcasters Convention, the final night was a, a banquet for broadcasters and partners. And it was such a delight for us t- to be able to hear Chuck Swindoll preach. He shared 15, 16, 17 points of lessons he'd learned in his 50 years of ministry. He's 77 years old now. One of the funniest moments uh, was, and it came back to me as I was studying this idea of coming clean, was when he pulled out an article and I'll share it with you, as best I can remember. He pulled out an article about a tough old woman. I mean, she was tough. She snarled in court from one side to the next, and she was in court for breaking the law. The court appointed a defense attorney, put her on the stand, and then asked her, do you know who I am? She said, of course I know who you are. You're John Morrison. I know you're a no-good lawyer who's cheated on his taxes and cheated with his clients. In fact, you've cheated on your wife two different times. I wouldn't trust you if you were the last person alive. He shocked. He didn't know what to say. He pointed over to the prosecuting attorney and said, well, do you know who he is? She snarled and said, I sure do. That's Billy Beckett. He's a no-good lazy loafer. Never amounted to anything. He doesn't take care of his business or his wife and three kids. In fact, he's having an affair right now with your wife. Both lawyers were beside themselves at this point. The judge called both of them to approach the bench. When they got up there, he said in a low voice, if either one of you asks her if she knows who I am, I'm sending you both to the electric chair. (laughs) See, you want to appear before God as if he doesn't know? Do you want to know him? No, he already knows you. Little wonder then that James says, if you want to get serious about your relationship with God, you will get serious about every other relationship as well. He writes, be miserable and mourn and weep. Those are three imperatives, one after another. It really just reveal genuine confession and repentance as believers repent of their sin and come back into full and satisfying relationship and fellowship with God. Be miserable and mourn and weep. These are not crocodile tears. These are not the tears of a, of a, of a criminal caught in a crime. These are not the tears of a politician or a preacher caught on tape. These are not the, the tears of investors who've been caught at insider trading. These are for real. 
Be miserable. That, that word means to grieve. It means to, to be wretched. Surely this isn't for Christians. I mean, we're supposed to get up in the morning and claim our victory and have happy thoughts and go out and get our miracle. Be wretched. Think about your wretchedness. Yes, this is Paul saying, Oh, wretched man that I am. Not was, am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death, this corrupt self? I thank God through Jesus Christ. This is the apostle Peter standing on the threshold to genuine deep growth, maybe in this way for the first time in his experience with Christ, just outside the garden as he is weeping bitter tears. He's never been at a better place in his spiritual life than there. This is George MacDonald, the Scottish pastor who wrote in the 1800s this prayer, Lord, in thy spirit's hurricane, I pray, strip my soul naked, dress it then thy way. This is mourning and weeping and understanding of who we are that fully embraces the grace of Christ. And in that comes satisfaction. Tim Challey's new book, published this year, The Next Story, writes, In 2006, America Online made an epic misjudgment. As part of a research project, the search history of 650,000 users over a three-month period was released to the public. Think about that. They changed all the usernames into anonymous user numbers, but it didn't take long before those numbers were linked to real names. They, they tried to withdraw the data, but the search histories had already been copied and uploaded on the Internet. 650,000 users with their search history for three months. Charlie's wrote, it was now possible to reconstruct a person's life, at least in part, from what they had searched for over a period of time. One of the things he commented on was the disparity of the searching. One user went from searching for preteen pornography to searching for games appropriate for a church youth group. Others, spurned by their advances, searched ways of exacting revenge. Others dealt with how to cheat in a number of different ways. He writes, their searches became a window into their hearts. James knew nothing about internet search engines, but he knew about the divine searcher. And the transparency of heart and mind and soul that says, as we seek to walk with him, Lord, we know, we know that you know everything about us, and that means that everything about us must be cleansed so that we can resist the evil one, so that we can draw near to you, so that we can cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. 
This is David who is saying, search me, oh God. Just track the trail of my life and heart. Try me. See if there be any hurtful way in me. And I love that expression because he gets sin. It's hurtful. It's destructive. One of the speakers we had a privilege of hearing this past week as well was Ravi Zacharias. One of the things he said that struck me is he said, you do not break God's commandments. God's commandments break you. And validate the fact that they are truly from God. See if there be any hurtful way in me. I mean, I'm going to land in a field and not on the airstrip. Because I'm outside the, the spotlights of your divine truth. Bring me back. These are commands for those who want to find not trivial or shallow, but deep and lasting satisfaction in Christ. Fall in. Stand strong. Draw near. Come clean or clean it up. One more for today. One more point. Keep low. He writes in verse 10, look there. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. And you have to smile and say, James, after what you put us through, could we do anything other than humble ourselves? In fact, we are, we are humbled. Good. Good. The words humble yourself come from a Greek word, typonothete, which simply means to keep low, to make one's self low. It's the idea of prostrating yourself before a monarch who sits upon his throne, your body in the dirt, your face in the dust. And then James says, and he will exalt you. What that refers to is that monarch getting off his throne and coming over and lifting your face out of the dirt and standing you up. We all want that. Will we prostrate ourselves before the monarch who is Christ? I'll close with this. Stuart Briscoe writes of traveling many years ago to Poland for several weeks of ministry. One winter day, he wrote, My host drove me in the dead of night to what seemed to be the middle of nowhere. I walked into a dilapidated building crammed full with young people for this meeting. Through an interpreter, I preached from John 15 on our need to walk closely with Christ. Ten minutes into my message, for no reason we knew of, the lights went completely out and it was pitch black. I didn't know what to do. My interpreter urged me to keep preaching. Unable to see my notes or read my Bible, I continued on. After I had preached in the dark for at least 20 minutes, the light suddenly, without any explanation, came back on, and what I saw startled me. Everyone in the audience was on their knees The next day I commented on this to someone who was there and he said, well, after you left, we stayed on our knees 
most of the night in prayer. You see, your message challenged us, and we wanted to make sure we were walking with Christ. Wow. This is the passion and the commitment and the growth and the walk that leads you wherever you are, wherever you begin, toward deep, genuine satisfaction in Jesus Christ. James knew we would need to hear them, all nine of them. And there's more to come as we seek to follow after Christ. Just for a moment or two, would you bow your heads and close your eyes and I speak first to believers. For this we have come, right? To sing together, to hear the word taught, to pray, to fellowship, to rejoice in the grace of God, to be edified. And edified, I always like to think of as as a verb that doesn't mean that we feel better, but it means we live better. And so, perhaps in in just a moment or two, before we wrap things up, the Spirit of God is touched in one of these areas, something you need to deal with. It may be resisting the devil, the accuser, and his lies. It may be taking the initiative toward God. It may be cleansing your hands or your heart. It may be falling into rank under his authority with the decision you need to make. Whatever it is, talk to him now. Do business with him right now. And let me speak to the unbeliever. Not only is it tragic and self-defeating to walk through life without Christ, our advocate, who would be yours. Eventually, the plane you're flying will crash. And there will be judgment. For his word has lit the runway and you have refused time and time again. Would you believe today? Let's close our session by singing. Of course, we were reintroduced again uh, to again just a few weeks ago. Let's sing this. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary.